Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Would you please join me in a moment of prayer? To you, O oh God, we give this time. And over the next few minutes, may you speak to us where we are. May you humble us, but may you also bring us the clarity of your wisdom and your grace. May my words then speak of that truth, humbly proclaiming you above all things. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I was introduced to a term over the winter. It's called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. And it is often used in the context of business and investing, but I think it applies to many other things in life. And right now, because of COVID-19, there's a lot of fear of missing out. Things that normally you would like to be able to do that you can't. And the fear that maybe there are some things that you could do that you're simply not even thinking about. Well, I was thinking about something that I have missed out on, not because it's been offered and I can't go, but because it hasn't been offered this year. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Robbie Burns Day. And for years, I participated in the Burns Night of the Toronto Scottish Rugby Club. And I was sometimes the MC, sometimes a speaker, sometimes just someone in attendance. But there was a fellowship, there was a joy, there was some fun as we explored the poetry and the thoughts of Robbie Burns and had a good time. I missed it this year. I missed it a lot. But it got me thinking of perhaps the most famous phrase of Robbie Burns. And it goes like this. I want the power to gift to gear us, to see ourselves as others see us. I want to have the power to be able to see myself as others see me. That's what he's getting at. Now, I'm not sure that in all honesty, I really want to know and understand and have the power to know how others see us. I see Laurie smiling and grinning here in the corner, and I'm sure she has some very good reasons to tell me why I don't want to know what people actually think of me and see of me. I'm not sure that's a gift I really want to have. But there are times when it would be kind of nice to know whether or not you're doing something that is meaningful, or that when they see you, there is a sense of joy in their lives. But the more important thing is not the gift he gives us to see ourselves as others see us, but really to have the power to see ourselves as God sees us. And that's a complicated thing. And it's not one that comes easily, nor do we fully know and appreciate. But having an awareness of ourselves in relationship to God, though, actually does start with ourselves and not with God in many ways. 
It is how we ourselves see ourselves in relation to God. And that can be a helpful thing. And in our text that Laurie read today, this magnificent, extremely well-known story of the Pharisee and the tax collector goes right to the very heart of that issue. How do we see ourselves in the light of God? Now, this is a passage that is among other parables in Luke's gospel. The one that precedes it is about the persistent prayer of a widow who keeps going to God. And in her prayer, the persistence, she is lauded by Jesus. She is praised by Jesus. But Luke tells us now that Jesus is telling a parable about something different, about someone who trusted in themselves and someone who looked down in contempt at others. This is an example in many ways of how someone who saw themselves had a distorted view of not only themselves, but also of God. It's also profoundly about prayer and humility. When Robbie Burns used that great phrase, it was in a poem called To a Louse. And the gifty gears to see ourselves as others see us might have been addressed to the louse for the louse to realize that they had alighted on the head of a very pious and a very good person and they should be humble in the presence of that person. Or it could have been addressed to the pious woman that she was harboring a louse, a pest in her head, and she should be humbled. Seeing ourselves then in a proper way can be a humbling thing. But the story that we have today tells us how in a humble way we should come to God in prayer and how maybe this is the approach that we should take when we want to see how God sees us. It starts off by revealing the odious nature of comparison, the odious nature of comparison. Now, when Jesus told parables, he was speaking in an idiom. He was speaking in a style that people would understand. They understood stories and stories with meaning. They also, as the original audience, would have understood the characters, people with whom they could identify on a daily basis. So he talks about real people in real situation in real time. And the first character in this parable, and the one that perhaps our mind goes to first, is the Pharisee, the religious leader. And this religious leader is praying, and they're probably around the temple. But as you look at the comportment, as you, you look at the way in which the Pharisee was delivering this prayer, it spoke volumes about Pharisees and prayer and humility. I mean, first of all, we're told that he stood up and he prayed, get this, about himself. That's the number one warning. He's praying, first of all, about himself. 
He is the object and the subject of his prayers. And he stands with his head high. He is looking up. This is a sign that you're coming into the presence of God with no shame, that you feel you can lift your eyes up to the heavens because you have no shame, boldness, self-centeredness. And then he outlines in classical terms his reason for praying so passionately about himself. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, in the biblical times, this would have been a very strong message. Fasting was something that, according to the law, was really required during the time of atonement. And often the Levitical priests, for example, would emphasize fasting at the time of atonement. But the Pharisees always wanted to go a one step more. They fasted twice a week. And the tradition was that they would fast on a Monday and they would fast on a Thursday and they would paint themselves white to show that they are fasting so that everyone knew that they were fasting. It was a sign that their piety was being known by others, not just by God. But he also says that he tithes everything. Now, everything means everything. This is a major commitment. To tithe like that is a real sign of someone being very serious about this. But to tell people that he'd been tithing, to make a public display of his tithing, to show everyone else that he had been a generous philanthropist was disgraceful. But on the other hand, in his defense, you kind of think, well, he's obeying the law, isn't he? I mean, there's a part of a person that goes, well, I mean, he's doing what he thinks is the right thing to do. There's nothing wrong with fasting, on the contrary, nothing wrong with tithing. Gosh, I wish more did that. No, he's doing good things, but he's elevating himself while he's doing that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful early book, The Cost of Discipleship, talks about the law. And he says, you know, the law itself is a good thing. And with the law, there is also a relationship with God. But if you only follow the law and you do not follow God or put God first, then you have a deep imbalance. He writes this, and I want to quote him because Bonhoeffer is always well worth reading. And maybe this is a plug for our Lenten study with Reverend Laurie on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You really should sign up. But this is what he said. Confronted with twin errors, Jesus vindicates the divine authority of the law. God is its giver and its Lord. And only in personal communion with God is the law fulfilled. There is no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God and no communion with God apart from the fulfillment of the law. To forget the first condition 
is the mistake of the religious Jews and to forget the second, the temptation of the disciples. You see, the law is fine. It is given by God, but God is its Lord. The problem with the Pharisee is he was all about his own fulfillment of the law, but he wasn't in humble service of God. And he declares this. I mean, look, his language is outrageous. He says, I thank you, God, that I am not like adulterers. I'm not like robbers. I'm not like evildoers. And then in this parable, he points to the tax collector. And I'm not like this tax collector. He had made the odious comparison. And this was his greatest sin. Not only was he praying about himself and elevating himself, he was also putting down somebody else. He was comparing himself to someone who was deemed to be lowly. We've all watched, I'm sure, in the news over the last few weeks, the struggle of the farmers in India with their government. It's maybe a story that hasn't, I think, been covered enough in Western media because it is a major world story. But as I was reading and exploring a bit more of the history, there has been tensions between farmers in India and the government for many years. And back in 1994, there was a fascinating moment. It was a moment when the government in New Delhi at that time had decided they were going to bring in to the country three million, three million tons of dung from the Netherlands to use in the farms in India. Well, the Indian farmers were outraged. I mean, after all, they had cows, they had dung, they also made sure there were no parasites in them. Why were we importing dung, they said. So a hundred or so farmers got their oxen and their, their carts, and they took tons of dung and placed it on the steps of the parliament in New Delhi to make their point. Our dung is as good as their dung, they said, and they made their argument cogently. The problem is, it was dung. <laughs> and oftentimes, we do that, do we not, in our comparison with other people. You know, our sins are, look better in comparison to somebody else's. You know, our problems are nowhere near the problems of somebody else. The odious nature of comparison. And that was the problem with the Pharisee. He didn't declare his own dung in his life. He didn't confess his own sins before God. He came to God with his head up high, full of pride, looking down on someone else. He lost his perspective of God. And he clearly had forgotten how God would have seen him in reality. God is not impressed by our abilities to tell God how good we are. God knows what is in our hearts and what was in the heart of the Pharisee 
was pride, was pride. And he was using the law as sort of a way of keeping others out as well, to distinguish himself from everybody else. It was a way almost of protecting himself from the tax collectors of this world. I was thinking about that because, in a sense, he was putting a fence around himself and using the law as a fence to protect himself from others. I am not like everybody else, and I thank God that I'm not like everybody else. It reminded me of when I visited a friend's cottage outside of Kingston in Ontario. And I was given a warning by my friend that there was in a neighboring cottage a very fierce dog. He was a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And Rhodesian Ridgebacks are strong-willed dogs. And I was told, even though I'm known as a dog lover, and I really am, not to come too close to Bert. So I got there, and I thought, oh, I saw Bert in the distance. And I thought, oh, I'll go up to Bert and make friends. Bert was protecting his land. Bert came running up to me, and I'm thinking, oh, dear Lord, I'm in trouble now. And Bert was snarling and barking and just doing what I guess he was supposed to do to protect his land. And just as he was getting close to me, he just stopped dead in his tracks and turned around and went back. And I'm thinking, what on earth is this? I must have great power over dogs, I'm thinking to myself. Very, very proud. This happened again the next day and then the next day. And then finally another day he came up and he stopped dead in his tracks and he turned away. And I said to my friends, boasting a little bit, do you know the power I have over this bird? I put up my hand when he gets near me and he stops. And they said, it's got nothing to do with you, Andrew. There is an electric fence that has been actually put around. And when he gets too close to that, he gets a buzz in his neck. He stops and he goes back. It's got nothing to do with you. The fence was protecting Bert, in a sense, as well as protecting me. But he was on the inside, and I was on the outside. And the fence, though I couldn't really see it, was having an effect. Well, that is how the law was operating for the Pharisee. He had a fence around him. And he protected himself with his fasting and with all of these things. But what he forgot to realize is that in comparing himself with everyone outside the fence, God could still see him inside the fence. And that was the problem for the Pharisee. But Jesus is showing something more positive, is he not, about prayer? Okay, it doesn't have to be self-absorbed. It can be humble. And prayer can be sincere. And that's the second protagonist. And that is the tax collector. Now, tax collectors had, as many of you know, a bad reputation. They were often co-opted by the Romans and by the Herodians and people in power to take money from the masses. Many of them would exchange money and would do so in a corrupt manner so that they made money on these things. They had a bad reputation. Just look at Zacchaeus in another story. But this particular character also goes to pray. But unlike the Pharisee, he stands at a distance. 
He does not feel that he's humble. He bows his head in shame. He beats his chest. In many ways, his whole approach was antithetical to and totally different from that of the Pharisee, the complete opposite. He came to God in his prayer humbly, and he puts down his head in shame. He then, in very much like the tones of the great Psalm 51 that said the following, this is sort of the approach that he took. Again, a very biblical approach. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He was following then a great biblical example of contrition, of knowing that in the presence of God, we have all sinned. Now, he knows as a tax collector that he is publicly seen as a sinner. Maybe it isn't just a private matter with him. But nevertheless, deep within his own soul, he says, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. His approach to God then was one of humble confession. But what does Jesus then say about that tax collector? Well, in a sense, the way Jesus tells parables, he lets us make up our minds in many ways as to which of the two was really righteous. But then he points to the tax collector and gives us his clue. His clue is that the one who was justified in the sight of God is the tax collector and not the Pharisee. Not the one looking down his nose on everyone, but the one who had humbly confessed like the psalmist that they needed the mercy of God. And that is why the tax collector is the example of how God sees us. God sees us as people who are in need of mercy. But the beautiful thing is that although we come seeking mercy and confessing our sins before Almighty God, it is God alone who justifies us, who puts us in a right relationship. The problem with the Pharisee is that he had tried to decide what that relationship with God was on the basis of his own self-assessment. The tax collector had come recognizing the sovereignty of God and recognizing that he needed the mercy of God. So therefore, it is he who was justified. Who? In all of this was the free person. Who was the one who was really liberated? The Pharisee had put the fence of the law around himself, and it had constrained him in many ways and made him feel self-sufficient. But the one who was truly free, truly liberated in this story, was the tax collector who came in a spirit 
of confession. This is Black History Month. And throughout Black History Month, I read some of the theologians who have influenced what is known as black theology. And one of them who died in the last year was the great James Cone. And James Cone was an American writer who dealt a lot with slavery and dealt with the issues of people of color who had struggled under the burden of that slavery. But he was also a Christian and concerned about the relationship between people who were slaves and the gospel. Andrew Prevo, in a wonderful article about him, said the following about James Cone in his view of slavery, prayer, and freedom. He says this, Cone distinguishes several features of the slave's particular way of contemplating and glorifying this God. He argues that in their prayers and hymns, they bore witness to a God who created them as beloved and beautiful children, who promised to liberate them like the Hebrews of old, who entered in the most radical solidarity with them through Jesus' suffering and death, who gave them hope through the glorious event of the resurrection, who freed them from the bonds of sin and despair, and who presently empowered them in their historical acts of resistance against the demonic powers of the slave system. Cone, you see, had made the connection between the prayers of the slaves who had, like the tax collectors, being pushed down and subjugated and had suffered and the freedom that they found in Jesus Christ. Remember, I've said this about the parables all along. You can't read the parable without remembering the one who told it. And the one who told it was Jesus Christ. And by lifting up this tax collector, by recognizing his merciful desire to come to God, his desire for mercy to come to God, his willingness to bear his soul before the Lord and to rely on the grace of God. This is the one who was justified. And Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry was always the ministry of explaining the freedom that comes from humbly coming into the presence of God. We are not sure, are we, how God sees us completely. Maybe we don't really want to know the full story. But what we do know is that when we come humbly into the presence of God, and we do so in a prayerful way, His loving, justifying, and faithful response to us is there in the storyteller, Jesus of Nazareth. A little confession on these cold winter mornings is a good thing. Amen.